Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We're so glad that you joined us today. It is our desire at Faith to help you connect, grow, and go in your walk with God. We hope you're encouraged by this message from Pastor Steve. Would you turn with me to the Epistle of Jude? Uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with what the, where that is, if you'll go all the way back to the book of Revelation and turn back one page, you'll be there. Because the book of Jude is only 25 verses and uh, not, a, not a large text at all. And um, it only occupies about a page in your Bible. So we'll give you just a second to get there. Maybe you're accessing it this morning via an Android or iPhone or something. That's great. We just want you to be in the Word. Amen. So as you're getting there, last week we introduced Jude's letter to the church as Jude was intending to write to encourage them in commonalities of the faith. But he quickly turns his attention from those things and he begins to give attention in detail to the false teachers that have crept into the church. And last week we progressed in this letter as far as verse 10. And if you weren't here, I urge you to go back. Uh, You can visit us online at faith-assembly.org and click the media tab there. Or you can find us on... um, Uh, your favorite podcasting app and and jump back and and catch up with these uh, messages. But I urge you to go back and and grab the one from last week as we begin this study in the book of Jude. We're going to resume today in verse 11, um, simply because that's what comes after verse 10. And we're going to jump back in today on verse 11. And Jude is going to begin to share with us some of the likenesses of these false teachers that have crept into the church. And he's going to share with us some likenesses first regarding their motivation. What moves these people to do the things that Jude has underscored that they've been doing? And he starts here in verse 11 and he says, what sorrow awaits them? And we know that judgment certainly awaits them. We're going to cover that a little bit later on. But right now we're going to focus on this next couple of sentences that says, For they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. Now, we do know and understand that great sorrow awaits this them and the judgment that awaits them because if we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll hear the Apostle Paul saying, that the only viable catalyst for Christian service and Christian ministry is the catalyst of love. Paul says that if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, it's nothing but a clanging gong or cymbal or just something making noise. That's all it is. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor and and I, I do all these great acts of benevolence even to the point of sacrifice in my body but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. But on the far end of that spectrum though, Jude shows us a different motivation for these false prophets and you know, there are so many things that we might say about each of these examples but suffice it for the study at hand that will simply summarize the symbology of each one of these. He says these false teachers, they're they're like Cain. Cain was the son of one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And if you read in the early chapters of Genesis, you'll actually find that Cain killed his brother Abel. And the reason that he did that is that he was driven by envy and jealousy. You can read that in Genesis chapter 4. 
Jude also mentions a man by the name of Balaam. And Balaam was a greedy and covetous prophet who was moved by the potential for reward to curse God's people. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And also, if you want to look in Numbers chapter 16, you'll find the story of Korah and his family. And you'll find that Korah was motivated by rebellion and disobedience. And Jude says here, this is, he likens the motivation of these people to these Old Testament examples and says, here's kind of why these people are doing these things. They're, 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 they're envious, they're covetous, they're greedy, they're, they're all these things, they're disobedient and rebellious. And then he gives us some analogies regarding their intentions. We read on in verse 12 and it says this, when these people eat at your Eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love. They're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They're like trees in the autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit, and they've been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackest darkness. Again, Jude gives us a list of things to which we might liken the intention of these false teachers. And uh, this morning, I'm not trying to ignite in anyone or impart to anyone the gift of suspicion. But I do want to remind you that this is not the teaching of people on the outside of the church that Jude is referencing. You'll remember last week early on, he says that these false teachers have crept into the church. In other words, they have permeated the culture and the landscape of the church. They're in. As a matter of fact, he begins this section here by saying, when they come together with you at your love feast, they, they do so unashamedly. There's no fear in them because they feel like they have, you know, achieved some kind of recognition among the ranks of the church. In the King James Version, it says, they eat with you without fear, serving only themselves. And just to give you a little bit of a, you know, a reference point, it's a little bit different, but not so much. The reason that we gather around the Lord's table here this morning is to commemorate the love of God. That's why we distribute sacraments, the bread and the juice, and we share together just in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So in other words, Jude may actually say there are some among you as you're sharing communion together. And they are, in the King James Version, if you're reading that, and I want to touch on it here for just for clarity's sake here for a minute. If you're reading in the King James Version, it actually says these people are spots on your love feast. They're, they're spots in your communion service. And... I read today from the New Living Translation for clarity of thought there on that because if you go back to the original language and you look at that word spot, the actual definition of it, it actually means a ledge or a reef or a large stone in the water. So in other words, there are people in the church, we might say, it, it draws for us a, a mental image of a large rock that's just beneath the water's surface. It's deep enough to be disguised, but it's shallow enough to wreck the passing ships. 
In other words, as we read from the New Living Translation, it simply clarifies that statement in a fuller version, and we might put that in a modern vernacular and say, there are some folks who sit among you that are motivated by jealousy, envy, covetousness, greed, disobedience, whose intention is to shipwreck the faith of other people. Regarding their substance, Jude gives us these analogies and says they're shameless. They're in the church to try to press their agenda. If they can't get what they want, then they adopt a new mission, and that mission is to take out as many with them as they possibly can on their way out. They're like clouds, Jude says, blowing over the lands without giving any rain. They, They may look like they're filled with the word of God, but in reality, they're empty and they're dry. They may be great orators. They may wax theological. They speak with great authority. They've had courses in public speaking and homiletics, and maybe they have more letters behind their name than the alphabet. A lot of credentials. But I want to tell you something today, church. It doesn't matter if the if the teacher, the preacher is wearing pants and a sweater, a three-piece suit, or if he's up in the vestiges and the robes, that does not lend credibility. It's not if his name is reverend or doctor or anything else. That's not what lends credibility. It's not what agency has declared that they have a ministry and named them a minister or a reverend. The the thing that lends credibility is when we can go back to the word and we can find the truth that they're teaching and say, aha, it all lines up. Because until that point, let me tell you something, there are a lot of contortions of truth and there are a lot of half-truths that are floating out on the landscape of Christianity today. And all I can say to that is that even a half-truth equals a whole lie. And it's time for the body of Christ to put away the sensational Let me tell you, there's a lot of people that will sensationalize the scripture to make it sound like something that you want to hear, something that excites you, something that revs you up. I told you last week, though, my job here is not to entertain you. My job is to tell you the truth. And and there are people that will sensationalize the word to make folks want to hear what they have to say. But it's time for the body of Christ to put away the sensational. It's time to put away the heretical, self-serving doctrines of false prosperity and a defiled grace that leaves men and women to languish in the clutches of the enemy and declare again the undiluted word of the Lord. It's time to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, resurrected, ascended to the Father, the victor over my sin, guilt, and shame, and preach the sufficiency of a grace that exceeds the troubles of this life. We need to tell them that there is still a man waiting at the well, and if we will but drink of the water that he gives, the life-giving water that he offers, we will never thirst again. Jude says they're like, trees in the autumn but not just any trees in the autumn if we look around right now outside you walk out these doors and maybe it's beginning to give a little hope of springtime is around the corner glory to God amen 
Because if it's not going to be snowing, it needs to be warm. Right? Am I, am I right? But we look outside and even now there are still some, there are still some trees and plants that are in full effect of the season through which they've passed. And that season is autumn and, and the fall time. And here the trees and things go into a state of dormancy. And, and all of the leaves and all of the fruit falls off of those trees. But we live with the expectation that because they are still rooted in the earth and they are still receiving nutrients, that in due season they're going to sprout out again and they're going to bear fruit and they're going to have a new testimony, a revived testimony of life in that leaf that they bear. But Jude here says that these people... Not only are they fruitless, but they're not even rooted in the source whereby they can then extend fruit and blessing to other people. They're, they're not only dead on the top, but they're dead on the bottom too. There's no life coming from anywhere. There's no exchange. He says they're like waves of the sea. They just churn up foam and they make noise. And church, I've got to tell you, I've been a lot of places and I've heard a lot of sermons and I've been in some good services. I mean some good services. And you know what oftentimes constitutes a good service? Is if I say the right catchphrases in the right order at the right tone and the right pitch for long enough until everybody gets excited and all stirred up inside. And what was said at the end of it all? Absolutely nothing. It was just noise. Noise. It didn't make any change in my life. I wasn't challenged in my faith. I may have had a light and momentary reaction of refreshment, but as soon as I got out the door and somebody cut me off in traffic, it was gone. <laughs> Jude says here, these false teachers, they come in, they sound good. They've got the religious jargon and the rhetoric down, but they're just noise, just churning, just making noise. And then he turns to Enoch's prophecy here in verse 14 and he says, Enoch who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, if you want to read about Enoch, you can find him early on in the book of Genesis. And he says that Enoch prophesied about these people and he said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every per person of all the ungodly things they have done for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. Now there's a lot of speculation concerning where Jude sources this information but, and ultimately the source from which Jude derived this passage respecting the prophecy of Enoch is, is unknown. But regardless of any speculation, the truth that is validated throughout scripture is this, that sinful behavior, unrepented sinful behavior, rebellion, and blasphemy against God will meet 
the judgment of God. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. If he sows according to the flesh, then according to the flesh, he's going to reap destruction. If he sows according to the Spirit, then of the Spirit, he will reap everlasting life. And this cheap, downgraded kind of grace that's being taught in the marketplace that says you can just keep on living for you and the grace of God is going to cover it all and there's no consequence for sin is a lie. Keep sowing to the flesh and according to the flesh you're going to reap destruction. And somebody I can hear, I can hear somebody saying to you right now when you go out tomorrow and you go to the workplace in the marketplace and you begin to say what your pastor said, somebody's going to say to you, well, I just don't believe that because I don't believe a loving God would send anybody to hell. Neither do I. I don't believe that God has ever sent anyone to hell. But I know that he loves us. And I know that he loves us too much to force us into anything that we are not consenting to. And just because we come to church and just because we ascribe to Christianity doesn't make us any less free moral agents with the ability to choose. God loves you so much that he wants you to choose to reciprocate the love to him. And if we choose ourselves rather than him, we're also choosing thereby to sow to the flesh and from the flesh we reap destruction and corruption. The choice is ours. We can live to satisfy our desires or we can submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not the desire of God that any should perish but that all should come to repentance, Peter tells us. And let me just explain this. Peter says that. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And just so you understand, because we often emphasize the asking of forgiveness for our sins, and it's true that if we confess our sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, but there's a B part of that too, and that is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and in repentance, there's not only the asking of forgiveness or the admission of wrong, but there's also the turning from sin. It's saying, that is who I was then. But I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and all things have been made new in my life and I don't need that anymore. Just received a wonderful testimony just this week. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lisa shared an awesome message here in this pulpit. And at the conclusion of that, gave an altar call. A young man came down to the front. I had the opportunity to pray with him and lead him to the Lord. He'd been a terrible alcoholic all his life. Struggled and struggled and struggled. And finally this week, he came back. He came back, the word came back to us that said, you know what, in that moment, not only did Jesus save me, but he also took from me the desire whatsoever for alcohol in my life. I have been delivered and I've been set free. 
But there are those that would share with that gentleman that that's nonsense. That the grace of God is, is such that he can just carry right on in that bondage and satisfying the lust of the flesh and that it's crazy for him to want to be delivered from it. Just live for you and suit you and satisfy yourself. But I urge you, church, that that path leads to destruction. It's clear in the word of the Lord. Again, Jude underscores the fact that these false teachers are simply living and in it to satisfy themselves. And you know what? All of these things, when we think about that, think, I want you just to think with me for a minute. Think about things you've heard in the news. Think about things that you've seen on social media and, and just theological points. And when we see heresy and when we see apostasy, conservative evangelical Christians, like we go from zero to boil just like that. And we haven't even started talking about politics yet. We can just go from zero to hot real quick, right? Because we didn't agree with something or somebody said something against what we, how we think things ought to be. So we've been talking about contending for the faith. And I want to share with you today how you contend with the faith. Because here in just a second, Jude's going to transition. And he's, going, he's told us all about these false teachers and all of these things that are, have crept into the church. And he begins this way and he says this. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. There's a certain power here in recollecting and, and reflecting on this word from Jude in this epistle. And what I'm about to say is by no means to downplay the severity of false teachers and apostasy in the, in the ranks of the body of Christ. But the fact of the matter is, is however that there has always been and probably always will be false teachers and apostates in the ranks of the body of Christ. No big surprise. God has not been dethroned. He still rules. He's still victorious. He still reigns. And you might ask today and say, well, what motivates someone to do something like that? Why would unbelieving people come in and pretend to be sincere believers? And the reason for that is that there's nothing quite as powerful as the human desire. James says this, temptation comes not because the devil made me do it. Not because God put me through it. Temptation comes from our own desires that entice us and drag us away. And this is not only true for false teachers, but for Christians of any calling, that many times in order to justify myself, there's a sense of need to retain the vestiges of religion even while I'm satisfying the lusts of the flesh. I want to appear to be right but not actually subject myself to the sacrifice of living for Christ. 
and subjecting myself to his lordship. These are those that are spoken of by the Apostle Paul as he talks to Timothy and says that there'll be a people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Jude 19. These are the ones who are creating division among you. You know how they do that? They come in with a false doctrine. They drop it in the middle of a bunch of Christian people and then everybody gets mad and takes sides. But I remind you again, it's not the accreditation of man that matters. It's what does it say in the scripture? I want to read again the, the... Paul's instructions to Timothy in the fuller context of this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 reads this way. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. In other words, they'll be an irreverent people. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to you. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Paul tells Timothy, he said, look, hey, stay away from people like that. Just stay away from them. And then Jude continues here in verse 20. And he says, but you, dear friends, here's how you do it. Here's how you contend for the faith. Don't, don't, don't argue with them. You don't, you don't have to engage them in debate in the public forum. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in the most holy faith. What faith? The faith that Jude started off with and said that had been delivered to the saints once for all. The gospel that's as old as the history of man. And you say, well, Jesus didn't die until later. I understand that. But ever since the shedding of blood for the sins of Adam and Eve, there's been types and foreshadowings that showed us of the redemptive nature and the power and the work of God that would be available in our lives. The word declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundations of the earth. Jesus' death and burial resurrection was not an afterthought in God's mind to make up for the mistakes of man. It didn't catch him off guard, but he already had a redemptive plan from the foundations of the earth. He says, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in the most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you to eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment and show mercy to others still but do so with great caution hating the sins that contaminate their lives listen 
building one another up in the most holy faith. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's what we're doing here in this place this morning. We're building one another up. Sister, when you came up this morning and worshiped, it built me up. It, it lifted me because I was encouraged. There was an extra liberty that was granted in my worship because I was encouraged. You're being built up right now in the most holy faith by receiving the word of the Lord. Your service one to another today in the body of Christ is building one another up. Your hospitality that you're sharing is building one another up. When you get together in your connect groups and you begin to pray together and you begin to share testimonies of life and how the word of the Lord has affected change in your life, you're building one another up in your most holy faith. When you come on Wednesday evenings, our brother helps to build you up in the most holy faith. When we worship together, when we pray together, we're building one another up in the most holy faith. But I cannot stress enough the responsibility of the individual believer for their own spiritual development. I want to tell you something. You may hear some great sermons and you may receive some great instruction, but you will not hear anything so profound on a Sunday morning so as to sustain your spiritual well-being for the week ahead without any action on your part. Be diligent in study, Jude says. Be diligent in study. Note that the charge is given here to the believers is not to study the counterfeit. Sometimes when we hear false teachings and different things, we want to really delve into that and find out what it's all about. We, yeah, I don't, you know, we're reluctant to talk to this sect of people or this group of people or people from this cult or that cult because we don't understand what they believe. You don't have to understand what they believe. You need to know whom you've believed in and how you're persuaded. Because once you know what you believed in, it's not necessary for you to understand or, or be familiar with the counterfeit in order to spot it. The best way to spot the counterfeit is to be familiar, intimately familiar with the original article. And once you've studied the truth and once you've known the truth, it makes it all that much easier to spot the lies. Get into your word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. How do you contend for the faith? You study the truth. How do you contend for the faith? Be prayerful. And this is more than simply saying prayers. This is having a spirit and a posture and an attitude of prayerfulness. The kind of prayer that Jude is stressing here is a prayer that is prayed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me tell you two things that the Lord wants to do through Spirit-inspired prayer. Spirit-led prayer. Number one, He wants to pray through us in a deeper and more meaningful way. And you can't get that in 30 seconds of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Man, I'm going to tell you what, that almost kind of scares me a little bit. 
you're honest. You know, you're going to go in your kid's bedroom at night and be talking about some, now I lay me down to sleep. But he wants to, the Holy Spirit wants to pray through us in a deeper and more meaningful way. We read that in Romans chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we read that the Holy Spirit, through spirit-directed prayer, wants to reveal things to us that can only be known by his illumination in our hearts and lives. Who knows the spirit of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? And who can know the mind of God except the Spirit of God? And the Spirit reveals to us the things of God. Yes, the deep things of God. And as we pray and we have been in the Word, as we've saturated our hearts and our lives with the Word and we've built each other up on the most holy faith and then we pray in the Holy Ghost, He wants to begin to reveal to us and show us things that we couldn't have understood on our own. All of this is done looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Number three, we need to be merciful. He says, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. When we see someone who's weak in the faith, someone who's being led astray with false doctrine, we need to be compassionate with them. We need to be merciful to them. That's hard for us. Because sometimes we feel like being merciful and compassionate is the same as conceding that sinful actions are okay, and it's not. We can be merciful. We can be merciful and still not agree that sinful action is okay. And there's a vast difference between being merciful with folks and accepting sinful actions. And sadly, many with the church don't know how to do such a thing. I mean, because we hear this stuff about false teaching and we're just... I mean, we're like a bottle rocket, man. We're ready to go off on somebody. Our call is not to belittle them in the public square call them out as heretics and hypocrites the call is to be merciful to them now making a distinction of course because some people are just malicious in their attacks against the body of Christ and the truth of God and that needs to be called out and some people are just confused they need the mercy of God extended to them and we need not judge them too harshly or criticize them but rather to treat them mercifully and lovingly with loving them with the truth in order to draw them back into alignment with the truth of Scripture. Finally, we need to be witnesses. Even in the display of mercy, our call is still to clearly side with the righteousness of God. You know, you can be nice to people and not compromise your faith. You can be merciful to people without compromising your faith. You can love people without compromising your faith. Nobody should ever question where you stand as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
I don't, I don't understand pastors and teachers who see great moral dilemma and debate in our society and, and they're neutral on the issue. I mean, how, is there no conviction in the call? I mean, can't you say that God says that it's right? God says that it's wrong. I, I, don't, I don't understand. But let your life, your actions, your words, let them bear testament to the truth of God. And I want to say this in closing, and I say it as lovingly as I know how. And that is this. We cannot, nor should we, expect others to walk at a level of righteousness greater than we're willing to walk ourselves. And say that one more time. We cannot, nor should we, expect others to walk at a level of righteousness that is greater than we're willing to exercise ourselves. Because we, we can do that sometimes too. We want to hold everybody else to a little higher standard than we hold ourselves. And that's hypocrisy. That's, that's how the Pharisees behaved, and we don't want to be Pharisees. We want to be authentic in our faith. We want to be mature, sincere followers of Christ. Amen? We hope you enjoyed this inspirational message today. If you would like more information about Faith Assembly, please visit us on the web at faith-assembly.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day.